Hello, and welcome to What's Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that Hang It On Your Heart, Marianne Faithfull's 1997 comeback single, co-written by Alex James from Blur, was actually the theme from BBC One comedy drama Born to Run. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that no one has ever seemed to, is novelist Susie Norman. Susie, what are you up to? Where can we find it? I've just written a novel. It's called The Ground is Full of Holes, and it'll be released early October, 3rd of October. And it's published by Patrician Press. I'm also an actor, and um, you can see me in a forthcoming episode of Autopsy on Channel 5, playing Marlon Brando's mother. Hang on, you can't just let that pass. What's the context for that? <laughs> I don't know. Her name was Dodie Brando. She was quite cool. She's a bit of an alcoholic. So, yeah, I play her, and I'm not sure when it's on, but it's quite soon. So there you go. Okay, well, I can't think of any way of linking it to your first choice without making it as the first ever libelous looks unfamiliar. (laughs) Although there was that show I had to take one line out of, but that's another story. Let's just hear a bit of it, and we'll find out why I couldn't link into it afterwards. I remember listening to maybe the first 20 seconds of on Now 16 and then not listening to any more. Susie, what was that? Yes, Sugarbox. I mean, in many ways, it sounds like an album filler track. I mean, it's not very good, but it really stuck in my head because of the video. The video was really, really cheesy. I mean, it's something that even David Brent from The Office couldn't think of. It was... (laughs) Mark Shaw in a red background and at one point he's like covered in dove feathers and at one point a woman releases doves up into the air and he carries an acoustic guitar over his back and it's just awful. (laughs) But I was actually a big Ben Jericho fan. I mean, I did like a lot of rubbish when I was young. (laughs) The first record I ever bought was Racy's Some Girls. To be fair, I was quite young. I think it was 1978. I used to buy records even when I was about four or five. But I was a massive Ben Jericho fan. In fact, I went to see them in Newport at about the same time that R.E.M. were playing. And my friend wanted me to go with her to see R.E.M. No! I know. I actually went to see Ben Jericho instead, which obviously I regret. <laughs> I wasn't massively into R.E.M. at the time because it was before my uncle Jeff introduced me to them properly and he gave me lots of his albums to listen to. But anyway, I went to see Ben Jericho and I was so obsessed with Mark Shaw and he actually wiped his forehead with his scarf and threw it to me and I caught it and I kept this sweaty scarf in my drawer. <laughs> for about two years without washing it before I saw Sense and eventually either me or my mother got rid of it I can't remember that well did you see Sense because it was starting to smell or because you'd gone off then Jericho and discovered other music I think I just fancied a different long-haired guy with good cheekbones and and moved on I think they weren't as bad as people thought I mean I was asking my husband Phil about this and he didn't think they were too bad I mean, they're not his kind of thing. But I basically liked them and Deacon Blue. Do you remember them? I do remember Deacon Blue, which is bringing me round to my observation about it, which is this is in a weird way. This is the highest compliment I can pay then, Jericho, is that, you know, around that time I was very, you know, I've been a big Jesus and Mary Chain fan for a couple of years, was quite into rap. But at that point, I was massively, massively into Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses. And I used to look at bands like poor old Deacon Blue and think, you're the enemy. Then Jericho. I don't remember thinking that about. I remember just thinking they were there. Which, by the way, <laughs> they'd, not, they'd not been, you know, offensive enough 
to enrage the teenage me. And so that is quite a point in their favour. Although it is quite weird to think of when what I think of them is exactly what you think. You know, the big symbolic bombastic videos, Mark Shaw trying to be kind of like a, a, you can't even say pound shop Jim Morrison, like a Jim Morrison who was starving himself to look like the BBC Pinocchio is kind of how I put it. But the thing was that they started off, it sounds like, really ambitious. I mean, just from a brief bit of reading up, they played the limelight in New York before they'd even got signed over here. Mm. And they kept trying to get London Records to release something called, I've never heard this, The Big Sweep as a single, which is an attack on Rupert Murdoch. And they kept saying that's got to be our next single. And the label just kept saying no. And how did they go from that to the video for Sugarbox? I know. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because they've obviously got something to say. But I've found Mark Shaw a bit sort of an enigma, which is always a good thing, really, isn't it? To be described as an enigma. Did anyone really know much about him? There's not much about him out there to the extent that on his Wikipedia page, he mentions mm. a solo album in the early 90s. So, Because weirdly, then Jericho broke up a couple of months after Sugarbox came out. Mm. And it says he did a solo album in 1991, and it says citation needed. So even his fans don't know enough about him to know whether he actually did the solo album or not. It's bizarre. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't know why I kind of drifted away from them. You know, I did like an awful lot of rubbish back then. I think I just literally moved on to a slightly more talented thing. But it's amazing what sort of you listen to when you're not being influenced by other people, isn't it? You know, I've got an older brother who was very cool and he introduced me to much cooler bands like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and Sonic Youth and that kind of thing. But left to my own devices, (laughs) I uh, went down different avenues. He used to wear boots as well, didn't he? Cowboy boots. Yeah. (laughs) I think he was just really, really confident. It was almost like he was a kind of throwback to that sort of self-important rock type of attitude yet still fairly enigmatic and no one really knew anything about him in fact what's he even doing now did men want to be mark shaw do you think absolutely not (laughs) i really don't think i think it's i don't know i think that when it comes to things like heavy metal men want to be mates with the band maybe there's a very weird thing about i find that women have an idea that men wanted to be like michael hutchins and i'm mm. sure that most men even if they liked in excess looked at him and thought he's a bit so he yeah. up basically in big pajamas <laughs> well he was deeply sexual type of figure wasn't he i mean we all know how that ended but like jim morrison he was just sort of a sexy bloke whereas mark shaw hmm, i think he was probably brighter more intelligent than Michael Hutchins, but who knows? We'd have to ask him. We'd have to give him a quiz, see? An IQ <laughs> test. <laughs> in a pointless sure. final altogether. <laughs> <laughs> but then Mark Shaw would win. I think Mark Shaw might be a pointless answer, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, even so, I'm sure he's probably better known than your next choice, although it had some surprisingly prominent people involved with it. This is a song from it, and you might well think, I know that voice. Well, we'll find out who it is in a minute. He walks like an elephant, he swims like a whale. His head like a pail, it's pathetic, oh, plainly. His tail's unesthetic, though nature endowed him poorly as still. Love the hippo journey, my H-I-P-P-O-P-O-T-A-M-U-S. Yes, I love the hippo, H-I-P-P-O. I love the hippo, H-I-P-P-O, H-I-P-P-O-P-O-T-A-M-U-S. Okay, you might be thinking that sounds a bit like Little Jimmy Osmond, and that's because it is Little Jimmy Osmond. Susie, what was he doing singing about Hugo the Hippo? Basically, when I was very, very small, there was this very terrifying animated film that would occasionally show up. And in fact, my mother still talks about it to this day. She says, do you remember, Suze? She's Welsh. Do you remember, Suze, that film about the hippo? And you used to cry your heart out at the end. And it's true. 
Because right at the end, the little hippo gets locked in a cage and taken away. And I, it's one of my first memories, is sobbing my heart out. But it was a very, very dark film. It's kind of a strange story. And it's a bit of a convoluted story. If I remember rightly, there were hippos and there were too many of them. So this guy wants to get rid of them all. And he hires what looked like Arabs, what looked like sort of bin laden type Arabs with tea towels on their head kind of thing, to shoot up these hippos that were kind of floating across the sky in this psychedelic way. But there was a really protracted massacre that was completely inappropriate for a children's film. It just went on and on and on, just killing hippos. But there were some really sort of nice songs in there. Like Mr. Mabawa, da 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 da, da da da. So there's really upbeat songs in it too. But Mr. Mabawa was he was pretty racist, really. I mean, he, he was this black guy who was evil, and he had massive beige lips, which was kind of strange. And he had all these weird posters up around his house, and he was basically evil. So my memory is fairly sketchy, but I've never forgotten it. And it's always stuck in my mind as being one of those weird psychedelic type 70s dark animation films. I wonder if anyone else remembers it. Well, there was a load of them around that time. Where I mean, because we've actually had a couple covered on here in the past. was Animal Olympics, which Vicky Gregorich chose, and the Phantom Toll Booth, which Chris Shaw picked. But there were a lot of films where... My view is that adults thought, oh, children like this. I'm like, no, they don't. They like Donald and Mickey falling over. <laughs> yeah. They don't like things like, what? I can never remember the name of it, that horrendous one that used to really bother me as a child, where it's like animated sort of Victorian stuff and sort of like real-life celebrities on films looking in, and it's where Rolf Harris dresses an undertaker sings that Whiskey on a Sunday song. It <laughs> yeah. used to go right through me as a child, but they'd always show up on things like Bank Holidays on the TV. And also on Screen Test, which I think I might see a bit of Hugo the Hippo on that. They were too cheap oh. to pay for, like, you know, Star Wars or anything on Screen Test. they just have any old tat that was lying around on the BBC shelves. Yeah. Also, it's one of those, those sort of cartoons I really associate with the early days of home video. And looking into it, I found out that until recently, Hugo the Hippo's only release over here was on the pre-cert video which is technically illegal now because it doesn't have a certificate. <laughs> and judging from your description of some of the characters in it, maybe that's no bad thing. It was actually released by, I couldn't believe this, and this story gets weirder still, Either Film Services, who put out a few of their very, very third division video nasties like Night of the Bloody Apes, but they also put out stuff like Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, Dark Star, The Cherry Picker, which is that weird Spike Milligan and Lulu film that nobody can find now, and also, I know Phil's a very big fan of this, Take an Easy Ride, that weird film about hitchhiking, they put that out on VHS way back when, and it's (laughs) weird to think that they all shared shelf space with Hugo the Hippo, but it gets even stranger because... This is possibly why the film is so elaborate and fancy and had such big names involved. It was produced by the short-lived Brute Film Studio. Now, you might be thinking, that can't be linked to Brute the Fragrances, surely? Yes. (laughs) Really? Yeah, they had a film studio for about two years. And as far as I can tell, they did a couple of films with Elliot Gould in, which he now hates. I don't know what was going on there. (laughs) (laughs) also the night watch which is a british horror film with elizabeth taylor and weirdly a touch of class with glenda jackson which is actually a really good film Uh and then they did hugo the hippo and then they stopped (laughs) really what was that all about so hugo the hippo was their last effort was it right that makes me love it all the more then well it has a very weird visual style as well because a lot of those things were kind of aping Yellow Submarine, except this looks like somebody's seen Rhubarb as well. Yes. Because it's like a sun with a big wobbling, smiling face and all kinds of things like that. And put it somewhere uneasily between the two. That's right. I mean, it's very dark, but it's also very melancholy in a way that I'm not sure that cartoons are anymore. I think me and you were talking about this once, weren't we? When we were talking about Eye for the Engine. And how desperately sad that was. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those sort of slow action cartoons, wasn't it? Nothing happened, really. But it would make you feel very, very sad. And I think 
the interesting thing about Hugo the Hippo was there would have been an emotional journey for me to go on having seen it because as a child I would have completely invested in those hippos and what happens to them and the injustice of how these tea-toweled masochists were behaving so there must have been some kind of story arc that really worked on some level yeah there were quite often things on the tv in those sort of slots where you would end them thinking even a small child i'm not sure i was actually entertained by that but it would trigger something to keep you watching until the end i mean probably the fact that children do quite enjoy violence and i think children do quite enjoy feeling sad as well and modern animation doesn't particularly indulge either of those two things well that's true but there's also the fact that there was nothing else on and nothing else to do and particularly the christmas holidays did you ever see the have you ever seen the pied piper with donovan which is terrifying that was on a couple of times on itv in the early 80s that should not have been on in a children's slot even though it's a children's film it was there's nothing entertaining or upbeat about that at all it's horrendous and his songs aren't even any good in it either because he's a great songwriter isn't he donovan yeah i think by the early 70s when it was made he wasn't doing museum anymore put it that way Okay, well, you very prominently mentioned the fact that your mum is Welsh before. I'm hoping this isn't one of the things that falls in the category of your next choice, where <laughs> I don't really know what I'm going to put as a clip in here, but we'll think of something. Hey, up have you lost your wheels? I know I am. You'll find out. Oh, greatly, it's a gassing game. Oh, I know, you've come to brew tea. How dare you, just because I live in a kettle? Oh, but I've got a lovely brew for you, dragon. <laughs> Punctured tires and rotten joke. Wheelie's axles bent and broke. Turn this dragon into smoke. Now poor Wheelie's waited for the end. Jenny and Zuma both expected Charlton to go up in smoke. It was all too sad. It was all too confusing. It was all taking far too long. Okay, well, some of you will recognise that, some of you won't, but I'm not even going to make any comment on why Susie's just advised me to use this. Susie, what is your next choice? I was thinking when I opted to do this podcast that I was worried I'd be talking about food too much because I, I love food and so many of my memories are about food, which got me thinking about my mum and my nan. And the funny things I used to say and do, mainly around food, but not exclusively. For example, we used to ask my mum, what's for dinner? Mum, what's for dinner? And she'd say, pig shit and du le What? Yes, exactly. That's surely, that's just an esoteric Welsh thing. I don't know anyone else whose mother used to reply, pig shit and du le when you ask them what's for dinner. I mean, what is Doulamon? I mean, maybe this was a defensive mechanism because basically there was a strict rotation of meals. So if it's a Tuesday, you should know it's going to be crispy pancakes. So, you know, uh, a variety of five weekday dishes, pork chops, sausage and mash, crispy pancakes, Irish stew and Friday tea, which for us was sandwich, a bag of crisps and a French fancy because Friday she didn't cook. But basically there was a very strict rotation of food. And what is Doulamon? Could it have been a corruption of two Le Monde, like the whole world? Oh, it could have been. That's a clever response. I see it as a type of goulash or maybe like a side garnish, something like sauerkraut or something. <laughs> but we still ask her now, Mum, tell us, what is Doulamon? Of course, she can't reply. And my nana, my nana lived in Ebervale. Well, she's still alive. She's 95. But we'd always go and see her sort of once a month. And by the time we were vegetarian teenagers, what she used to make for us was basically egg and chips. That was it. But the interesting thing about nana was when you went to eat at her house, she would serve the dessert before the main course. What? Exactly. You say what a lot, Jordan, in this section, I think. We would have trifle or something like that before the main course. Was there any particular reason for that? It was never explained. It was never challenged. My mother, my mother and my auntie never challenged it. We didn't challenge it. In fact, we didn't even comment on it to my mum in the car home. I just grew up thinking that was normal. I mean, it's not not normal, but it's still a little bit odd 
it's extremely odd. As an exclamation of surprise or horror, my mum would say, Jeevery Mike. Jeevery Mike. So like, Jeevery Mike. Like in the way that you would say, oh my gosh, or you must be kidding. Now, what is that about? I've got no suggestions <laughs> for that one. I mean, it could be the name Mike, but what's Jeevery? I know. What? Uh, who is Mike and why is he Jeevery? Does he suffer from his nerve? Does he, hey, maybe he looks like Jeeves. Maybe he caught stealing the family silver. There is a thing about... I mean, I think each family has their own thing, where it's something that... It's normally things that people say, but sometimes it can be the order in which they serve meals, where it's an eccentricity that's gone on for so long and so unchallenged that it becomes unchallengeable. I mean, the ones I always think of where... I had some elderly family members when I was really young whose response to sort of toddler misbehaviour was, you'll end up in a home with your ears tied back. <laughs> and me and one of my sisters both said exactly the same thing. We just used to think, but how's that going to stop? What What would tying your ears back do? How is it possible? What, what effect would that have? What home is this where they tie your ears back? So it had no effect at all, but we didn't realise it was weird. And the one that really, really bothered me as a child was that joke where, I mean, I'll come back to in a second that, you know, older people were a bit out of touch with kids in those days, but trying to be on your level and all cred and street, older people would always say, why have elephants got big ears? Because Noddy wouldn't pay the ransom. What? Ransom? Why would they have big ears? You know, surely Noddy would say, you can keep that sort as well. I totally remember that too. Where did that even come from? I don't know, but it didn't make any sense. But, you know, you you didn't get to challenge it at that age. But the one that really, really bugged me, and it still bugs me now, is that, I mean, it's a different world now. We're surrounded by the past all the time. Mm. Somebody mentions something, you don't know what it is. It takes two seconds on Google, even if it's like Ski Boy or R3 or something. Admittedly, you Google both of those, you'll find me, but that's not the story. (laughs) When people mention things like quite a lot when you get a present, adults will shout, open the box! As in that Take Your Pick game show, which I think finished about six years before I was even born. I had no <laughs> idea what that was. I remember people mentioning Biggles and thinking, who's Biggles? <laughs> Why did they expect children to be conversant with things that they barely remembered? I think it's just their secret way of having a laugh, don't you think? <laughs> Because when, you know, we talk about little family traditions, at Christmas, that's a big time for that, isn't it? In my family, we'd all wake up in the morning and have to go downstairs to open our presents in height order. What? Yeah. Uh, yeah I told you would be saying what a lot. <laughs> so the tallest would be at the front, obviously, and the shortest at the back. But it was very, it was a cruel in a way because my much younger brother was the baby. And, of course, he was the most excited. In fact, he was the reason why we were up at 4.30 a.m. to go and open our presents. And he'd be right at the back. And yet I was the second. This makes absolutely no sense. I was the second youngest, yet I'd be one behind my dad in the pecking order just because I was the tallest sibling. Very strange. So it's like you were being rewarded for something you had no control over, which was your height. (laughs) That's one time I felt superior so i quite liked it (laughs) (laughs) but it was all very um unchallenged as we say do you have christmas traditions the only thing that i would call a tradition which i think was entirely deliberate i'm assured otherwise would be that christmas dinner would always be served the minute that the Christmas Top of the Pops began. And, you know, it will take the whole length of the programme, even with all of us going back and forth, getting stuff in the kitchen to take into the front room and put all the knives and forks out and so on, the whole length of the programme. I am convinced that was a a random act of cruelty. (laughs) And it's the only day of the year where we would be drinking starting at 4.30 in the morning (laughs) and carry on until we could take no more. Quite a big drinky family actually but yeah funny things your family says well i'm pretty sure no other families do i mean some of these sayings i was thinking they must be well surely i mean i've run it by phil he's never heard of these sayings either and i'm sure he's got some of his own from his family but that's what i like 
It's not an eccentricity as such, but I do love the fact that my dad always, whenever he sees anything dangerous, like a nail poking out, says, that's bloody handy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, just, it's the best act of sarcasm I've ever <laughs> You can see where I get a lot of my attitude from. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm wondering if you got this particular book for Christmas. Again, it's something that's absolutely nothing I can use as a clip for, so... Here's something entirely random. Jennifer, Julie and Josephine All want different things Jennifer wants a good career And comforts money brings Judy just wants a family of her own Three cheers for the family To take the place of one she's never known Josephine lives in a penthouse flat, drives an open top sports car. Her father is a millionaire. Okay, that was Jennifer, Julie and Josephine by the television personalities. What a turn up for the books. A song by the television personalities about three models sharing a flat. Never heard them do that before. <laughs> but we can take Julie out of the equation here, because Susie, what was Jennifer and Josephine? Well, Jennifer and Josephine was my favourite children's book. I mean, I was a voracious reader as a child. That's all I ever did, basically. I read far more than I watched on TV. And this book was first published in 1970. And it's quite a charming little story, really. It's about a man who steals a car. And in the back are a family of cats. And that's Josephine. Josephine's the car. Jennifer is the lady cat. But she has a huge family of her own cats. And in fact, some of them, they don't look like they're related to her in any way because she's a white cat. And her cats are tabby. Some of them are black cats. Some of them are tuxedo cats. Some of them are ginger cats. But they all live in the back seat. And when the car is stolen by this man who looks a bit like Willie Lomax, I think it's an American book, he steals the car because he's on the run, although it's never explained why. And he never once notices that these little cats are in the back. But actually, when I was reading it as a child, I didn't even notice that it was American. Because what happens is, he takes the car into the city, and of course the city's New York, but in my little child brain, I didn't realise that, and just thought it was any generic city. And I'm not even quite sure why I was utterly obsessed with this book, but I was. I read it over and over and over again. I was a bit obsessive as a kid, actually. I was either quite indifferent about things or I was utterly 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 obsessive the only other story that I felt like that about was Rapunzel and I used to try and get my mum to read it to me but mum never used to read to us we'd always have to read to her but this was the first book that I could read by myself without any help and the illustrations in it are very beautifully done and it's all pencil drawings and everything looks very scary you know it's that feeling of if you lose your home, everything out there is terrifying. I don't even know why I loved it so much or if anyone else even remembers it. But I still have my copy here and it smells it smells absolutely old. <laughs> that is a good compliment for a book. But I found out a couple of things about it. The first thing is the man who buys the car, because rescued from a scrapyard, as you say, is called yeah. Mr. Frenzy, apparently. Oh, that's was, right. Was, was he off to Tower Bridge to dump a body? <laughs> he, he Sorry, that, sat... that's an esoteric reference. <laughs> he was so determined he would be sat forward in his car with a cigar hanging out of his mouth. And carrying suitcases. And I guess he's a, he's he owes someone money and he's trying to get away or something. Okay, this is starting to sound like it was a prequel to Frenzy now. So that's <laughs> yeah. a bit disconcerting. But the other <laughs> thing I found out was it's no surprise you like the artwork in it because Bill Pete, the writer, do you know much about him? I really don't. No. He was a scriptwriter and storyboard designer at Disney for years and years and years, right through from, I think he first worked on Snow White, and he left in the late 60s because he had a huge disagreement with Walt Disney about the Jungle Book, that he thought it was insulting to the original novel to sort of sanitise it and make it jolly, happy, clappy and take out the dark elements. And mm. it says, everyone says it, 
he left Disney. I suspect he may have been given the push. You hear all these stories about Walt Disney. That he was yeah. a difficult man. And, you know, I don't think he would have taken too kindly to that. But how times changed. The other thing I found out was Disney are currently doing a Jungle Book 2, following on the reboot the other year. And they are mm. proudly saying that they dug out Bill Pete's original script ideas and worked up a new script from that. Right. And I think it is absolutely right to tell the story in that way now. So, yeah, how things move on. I mean, it looks very dated now, but it's so lovely when you have a book that you absolutely adore. And this was the one. And I was pretty indifferent to cats when I was little, actually. My family were anti-cats. My mother thought they didn't like her. She thought they were evil. So, I was, in fact, you could say I was given a very anti-cat upbringing. And it's only when I had my own cats that I even became interested in how they behave and how they move, that kind of thing. And the way that the cats move in this book is very beautifully done. And the guy must have been a cat fan to sort of know how they move their paws, how they arch their neck when they're afraid, that kind of thing. And there's lots of lovely, fluffy bunnies running around and lots of animals in the fields. And maybe that's why I like animals so much. Who knows? But the kittens are particularly cute. I'm not sure this is translating very well into a radio (laughs) section. It's my book that I love, so there you go. It is quite, I mean, this is a recurring theme on Looks Unfamiliar, that everyone tends to have one book that, when they were a kid, nobody else that they knew had, and that they loved. And it's only years later you find, oh yeah, lots of people remember that. But the big one is the Amazing Monsters books, where everyone who's mentioned them seems to think it was only them that had them. And yet, mm. they just seem to come up all the time. I will a bit, I've not heard anyone mention Jennifer and Josephine, but... There are web pages out there about it, mainly American, but it, really? which does indicate that, you know, maybe it was just that people read it and fell in love with it. Well, also, I'm wondering how I came upon it. If it's an American book, was it a gift from a family member, perhaps, or did I buy it with my own money? I mean, obviously, I don't remember. But, yeah, I don't know anyone else that's read it in this country anyway. But it's really interesting to think that there's a bit of a fan base for it out there. I mean, it's when books were kind of simple weren't they a simple yarn because lots of children's books now i mean from my years as a primary school teacher i'd have a little look at them and they always seem to be hammering home some kind of moral point or trying to be zeitgeisty about you know gender and divorce and all those sort of fairly modern problems there wasn't that kind of angle in the old days i don't think so much it was just a simple story of being lost and being found and then working out where home is after all. There was less of a sense of someone was trying to preach to you. Okay, well, moving on from a very realistically drawn cat to one of the worst rendered cats ever in the history of anything ever for your next choice. I still can't believe this went out on primetime BBC One. Here's a bit of it and... I just, I'm not even going to try explaining it. Now will you please welcome the man that lays the traps, that catches the mice, the host of television's Come on, Mouse, Dave Wright. Thank you, thank you. Good evening. Thank you so much. Welcome to another tension-packed half-hour of Cat and Mouse. Will the mouse succeed in escaping that terrifying pussy? (laughs) Or will the cat triumph and win tonight's star prize? Well, we won't know until we reach tonight's final. And to start on that trail, we need to meet tonight's contestants. So, contestants, will you join me now, please, on the Fromage Fun Run? Uh, Arthur, Arthur. Yours is the stilton. <laughs> <laughs> He's been after Joan's nibbly bits all day. <laughs> Just won't leave the women alone. That's what happens when they get on television. It goes to their age. OK, I'm going to try and say this with a straight face. From EastEnders in 1989, that was Arthur Fowler appearing on the television game show Cat and Mouse. Susie, how did this come about? It was like nothing you'd ever seen. And it's certainly like no quiz show you've ever seen. nothing like anything that was on around then. (laughs) It was just shoehorned. I think it was about 1986 or 1987, sometime like that. I mean, this was the grand old heyday of EastEnders, in my opinion. Right from the show's first episode up until, and I always say, up until Cindy Beale turned up. Oh, you're agreeing with me there. Now, I've nothing against Michelle Collins at all. 
But for some reason, it signalled the end of an era for me. There was a weird week in EastEnders around that time. Angie had gone. Den had just been killed. And then Cindy turns up. And you just you just know retrospectively that that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> because they were four or five glorious years of TV beforehand. But yes, shoehorned in the middle of this was Arthur Fowler going on a quiz show called Cat and Mouse. And it had a kind of snarky compare in a dickie bow. He was quite rude to Arthur. He'd say things like, will you join us now, please, on the Fromage Fun Run? And no quiz show speaks like this. And poor old Arthur, you are sure that he's going to lose because he's a bit of a loser character, isn't he? Yeah. He had a great storyline where he had a nervous breakdown. But after that, it was like the writers didn't really know what to do with him anymore. So they kind of didn't write him anything remotely interesting. He was just kind of subservient partner to Pauline. He was a fearful matriarch character. But he had nowhere to go. Same with his brother, Pete Beale. His brother-in-law, sorry, Pete Beale. I don't think the writers really knew what to do with them, and they just kind of petered out towards the end. But this was Arthur's moment to shine, because he's actually chosen to be on a quiz show, and everyone hangs out in the Vic to, to cheer him on in that lovely community way they used to do. But you're sure that he's going to lose, because that's what happens to Arthur. But he does actually quite well in it. The Cat and Mouse show. It's never really explained what the objective of the quiz is, is it? Have you seen it? I remember it from when it was on, and I have just watched it again, and yeah, it, it isn't clear what's going on. I mean, he has to wear silly ears, doesn't he? Yeah, he looks like Cartoon Head from Ideal, which, well, BBC3 references are a bit dated now, <laughs> but if anyone recognises that, that's exactly what he looks like. I just remember the compare sort of insinuating that Arthur was a ladies' man, and that sort of that was quite amusing. It was a surreal interlude, really, and a very odd idea. But, of course, he does actually win, and I think this is this surprises the viewer. He is actually quite smart, and he answers a few, fair few questions, and he wins a holiday. But, of course, it all goes wrong after that. And it's never explained where the holiday is. It's like a holiday token, if I remember rightly. And he doesn't actually use it, and he tries to sell it. Oh, that's right, he sells it because he needs the money. I mean, who's ever heard of a holiday token that you, token. That you, that you can sell because you won it in a competition? The whole thing was utterly absurd. Well, when I watched the clip again, the thing that I found really weird was he mentions Mark Fowler quite prominently. Yeah. And this was slap bang in the middle of Mark's wilderness years because for anyone who doesn't know, when it was first launched, Mark was one of the main characters played by David Scarborough, mm. who was a really young actor, and he was really good, but he had massive problems with depression. Have a look on YouTube, just type his name in. There's a BBC documentary from the time dealing with kind of his collapse and mm. so on, where it does insinuate that he was... He wasn't. He was very, very slowly fired over about eighteen months, with his appearances decreasing yeah. because he refused to use some racist terms on camera. I think he was exactly right. But looking back now, the timing of the Arthur Fowler breakdown story in relation to that is leaving a nasty taste in my mouth. Mm. But eventually, I think there were hopes that he might make a recovery and come back. But unfortunately, he took his own life, and they didn't do anything with Mark for quite a long mm. time until Todd Carty took up the role, I think, in about 1991. But this was right in the middle of that void where you'd think they would probably try and do it like Joni and Richie's older brother on Happy Days, who once he left, he disappeared. He was never mentioned yeah. again. They were obviously still including references to Mark, which is interesting. Yeah, they have to keep him alive, I suppose, don't they, in some way, as a character. But yeah, it's a very sad story about him. I heard that too, that he he wouldn't use racist language and i really respect him for that actually because there was a character a bit later sid owen remember him yes yeah there was actually an interlude where they made him the screaming racist really yeah there was there was an asian family i think it's the first asian family that moved in i can't remember their names now but there was a guy who was having an affair he owned the shop and his long-suffering wife and it was an arranged marriage storyline back then oh yes and sid owen was throwing well, Ricky Butcher is his name, isn't it? Were throwing bricks through the window. And it, it only lasted a few weeks, if I remember rightly. But, it, yeah, that was not nice. And not nice for an actor to have to do that. I 
But I love those little light moments of non-soaps. And there, I don't know if you remember, but there was a storyline when Phil and Grant Mitchell turned up and they had to get rid of some hooky T-shirts. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> free Nelson Mandela on them. So free Nelson Mandela. And of course they couldn't shift them now. <laughs> so Grant got a load of lettering and put he's free in it over the top. And I just remember this scene where Grant is chasing Phil around the square with his T-shirts on. <laughs> they were actually really funny, those boys, in the beginning. Grant yeah, they were, they were comic relief characters, really, weren't they? And they became yeah. darker later. I mean, my favourite EastEnders moment ever, and this is one that people always chortle at, the storyline that I got the most drawn into was when they formed The Band. Originally Dog Market, later The Band. Yes! I, I loved it. I loved everything about that. I loved the Billy Bragg-style manager, Harry. Um, but I loved Eddie, who was Wixie's mate, the guitarist, who joined them, who yeah. then made the cameo six months later at Calvin's birthday party. And they all say, oh, it's Sharon, look who's here, it's Eddie. And like, that, that <laughs> to me, that was just an amazing callback. There's no need to have him there, but they put him <laughs> in. But I loved, I loved that whole storyline. It annoys me that people snort at it now. In I some agree. ways, it was like a more realistic thing about people forming bands at that age when they don't really have the conviction. They just like the idea of being in a band and they do a very not very good song and don't know how to organise themselves. It all falls apart on stage. That happened to quite a lot of people I knew. Not saying me, it might have done. <laughs> That's right, absolutely. Quite a lot of people I know too. What was the manager's name again? Harry. Harry, he was such a plonker, wasn't he? Yeah. He was like, this isn't authentic enough. No, this isn't This isn't what we want to achieve here. And of course, Letitia Dean is, is a sort of West End type singer, isn't yeah. she? It was, it was completely incongruous that he would team up with a kind of mainstream West End singer. Well, I went back and rewatched because all those episodes are on YouTube recently, and I found out some amazing things. Like, there's one where Wixie's mate from his old band drops by to offer them advice. It's Sue Money, the 60s blues pianist, plays Wixie's mate from his old band. <laughs> And the other thing, that wow. this phrase has always stayed with me. There's one bit where the, I think Harry is trying to record a rehearsal and Eddie keeps like riffing on his guitar or, as Smash It's called Eddie, Sir Billy am idle with a pink feather duster on his head, which is yeah, the look right. of the day. But I remember he just kept squiggling away and Harry was going, Eddie, stop! And they went, Oi, Jimi Hendrix, knock it on the head, will you? We're trying to work here! And that phrase always <laughs> stayed with it. The weird thing was, Kevin Greening on Radio 1, he used to use all kinds of weird little clips. Mm. used to use that in the middle of his show and he must what? that must have stayed with him and the second he got into radio one he must have gone to the archive and said can i have the episode of eastenders with that in? <laughs> what was that song they did something out of i've still got the seven inch of that you bought it i bought it with a b-side Times square yeah all right i'm gonna tell phil that <laughs> you're telling me phil hasn't got something out of nothing i find that hard to believe sometimes when he's like in the bath or something I'll stick on something out of nothing on Spotlight. <laughs> Just to make him laugh. <laughs> it's actually not a bad song in some ways. It's not bad, but it's certainly not great. <laughs> it all ended quite badly, that band, didn't it? Mm. Because they put they sabotaged the tape. Isn't that right? Yeah, they were doing a live gig. It's, am I remembering this rightly? It, they weren't sure who would sabotage the gig by removing the tape. Did they ever find out who did yeah, it? Yeah, it was Harry. Why did he do it? It was an artistic statement, apparently. They thought it was Wixie, didn't they? They did. He got the blame initially. <laughs> he was fired from the band, so they thought he was sulky. <laughs> yeah, but then he wrote Every Loser Wins on that weird piano with two keyboards at the Vic. But the thing about Cat and Mouse is, as you say, it was nothing like any game show, particularly any BBC game show that was on around them, because... My memory is that there was either the highbrow stuff, people actually answered the questions properly, or it was things like, I mean, this is 80s game shows to me. The game itself wasn't very demanding. The questions weren't hard. The contestants were usually spectacularly thick, but the host was nice to them. Unlike this guy. It's my abiding game here. Just yeah. all about every second counts with Paul Daniels. Where he'd say, like, okay, yeah. you've got 60 seconds to name another <laughs> name for Her Majesty. I'll give you a clue. It's the Queen. 
And they just stand there while this timer beep down, just with fixed grins. And then you go, oh, I'm sorry you didn't get it. Maybe you'll be more lucky later on. And, <laughs> but that, that was it. They were nice to the content. There wasn't that bullying thing that is all over this. That's right. That's a really good point. It's like he's an Anne Robinson of his time. He wears the trousers or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe lots of um, quiz show makers saw it and thought, aha, we could be onto something like that. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to say moving from Am Robinson to your next choice in terms of things being really annoying, because that, <laughs> that would be unfair of me. But this <laughs> advert, I've been dreading this throughout the entire show. I haven't heard it from that day to this, and I'm really happy to be reminded of it. I don't doubt people will smash their MP3 players or their Spotify, whatever it is on hearing it, but here it is anyway. You may not want your children to watch this commercial for Chamboisie Real Chocolate Mousse because it contains scenes of sheer indulgence. Mmm. Made with real chocolate, whipped into a truly delicious mousse. Far too good for the children. Chamboisie Real Chocolate Mousse. Shh. Just the children. Okay, that's the advert that made me want to just throw any television nearby out of the window without even the excuse of being on tour with the Who. Susie, Chamborsi Real Chocolate Mousse, why? Why not? What's your problem with this advert? Everything! <laughs> why, Tim? It's that when she said, don't tell the children. Oh my God, that annoyed me so much at the time. Well, this is why it resonated with me, you see, because I've got a much younger brother so in 1990, he would have only been four, I think. And I, I'm not sure when that advert's from, whether it's late 80s, early 90s. But anyway, the point I'm making is my mother used to buy Shambusi real chocolate mousses and keep them in the fridge. And of course, when we were a little bit hungry, we would try and eat one. And she'd always appear at the door <laughs> say, leave them alone, they're for David. And we'd be like, excuse me. They're supposed to be for adults. Because when we were young, there weren't adult-only foods and children's-only foods. Yogurt-wise, anyway, were there. There was just yogurts. There was just ski yogurts, wasn't there? And the irony is, they were just for David, who was four years old, and we weren't allowed to touch them. So that really stuck in my mind. I'm back to food again, aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) We weren't really allowed naughty things in our house at all. In fact, if we tried to go in the biscuit barrel, Mum would be like, get out of that biscuit barrel! A voice booming from an upstairs room with supersonic hearing. She could hear us going. <laughs> <laughs> My mum was a nurse and was super health conscious about things like that. It kind of stood in good stead, though, because we were all very, very, very slim teenagers. <laughs> sort of half-starved, really. And I think it's only when I got married that I actually started putting on weight because I could eat whatever I wanted because I had my own home. <laughs> well, I'm wondering how popular these things actually were with adults. Because, I mean, you break the advert down, even apart from that annoying voiceover, you've got at the top of it, there's a really cheap adults-only caption, like you might have seen before a dodgy trailer at your local independent cinema. <laughs> Yeah. In the early 80s. There's also the kind of music that you might have found on an Electric Blue video. Not that I'd know that, just sort of by reputation. <laughs> it had that real sort of horrible, tacky 80s idea of what adult was. And weirdly disconnected kind of narration that sounded nothing like that. Did adults watch that and think, well, hey, I must get some of them? I don't think so. Well, clearly not, because they bought them for their four-year-old child. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever their reason detriment was, I don't think it was working terribly well. But I also remember Wheater Flakes. Do you remember them being in a yellow sack? I remember them being in supermarkets, but there's a weird kind of like do not touch aura about them. I don't know why, but they were like, we always had the impression that they were for other people. Yeah. And that if sometimes, occasionally, if you went to stay with another family, who were, you know, slightly more la-di-da, you know, had ideas above their station maybe. Sometimes they would have Wheater Flakes and you would politely decline out of thinking, hmm. Because I was thinking it was a kind of granddad thing. My granddad used to have them in a sack. They used to come in a big yellow bag. I don't think any other cereals used to do that, did they? No, that's the weird. That's what I remember about. The thing that's maybe why they seem different and distant was 
They were in the bag, in a bright yellow bag. That's right. Um, me and my sister still reminisce about them now because when we were tiny children, oh my God, I'm really sounding like my mummy's starfish. We used to go up the road to Grandad's house and he'd be just sat in his chair, either smoking a pipe or trying to eat his wheat flakes. This would be about 1977, something like that. And we'd always just wander up there for something to do because it was literally like four doors down. And we'd literally stand next to the chair that he'd be sat in with our mouths open, <laughs> waiting, <laughs> waiting for him to spoon us his, his wheat flakes into our mouths. And he never complained or accused us of being street urchins because that's exactly what we were. <laughs> well, you see, I kind of thought they were like, a, you know, a, a healthy alternative sort of thing. But I did find an advert for them online, which had kind of music that sounds a bit like Weather Report with shots of a boxer, some scouts and a granny tucking into Weeta Flakes. Making a big version <laughs> yeah. of the fact they were in the bag. So they were clearly saying they're for everyone. But there's also, I couldn't find this, there's rumours online of another advert, kind of a bit like I Like Bouncing for Not the Nine O'Clock News, like a Scar parody, with all these like blokes in pork pie hats singing about Weeta Flakes. Something about salt to make them crunchy. I mean, surely only the Scottish are mad enough to put salt <laughs> on <laughs> I tried making uh, porridge recently by just putting hot water on it and a little bit of salt. Because I was doing this weird experiment where I wanted to find out what would be the absolute cheapest dish that you could eat. And that surely would win. But it was foul. And why did the Scots do that? But I didn't realise that you ate them with salt. And I didn't even realise they were advertised on TV. It was just something my granddad had. But did you ever get a Chambourcy real chocolate mousse and did you like it? I don't think I was ever allowed to eat one. No, I did have one. I'm pretty sure I did. And it had a very, very sort of powdery taste to it. A kind of dark chocolate powdery taste. And in a way, it had a kind of consistency that's a bit like those Alpro vegan mousses you get now. Have you ever tried those? Yes. Yeah, I can imagine that, actually. Yeah. And I actually quite like those. So it tastes a bit like that. <laughs> Forerunners again. They don't promote those <laughs> saying, don't tell the children, do they? <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to encourage children to be vegan, aren't they? Well, you see, the thing is, you at least, you know, knew they existed. There's one question that has always bugged me for years and years, which is, there's that famous outtake that's always on things like It'll Be Alright on the Night, of when Michael Alexander St. John is introducing an episode of Within These Walls, and the advert for St. Ivel Yogs comes up. Do you know anyone who ever had a yog? <laughs> no, I no, don't know. No, nobody did! And yet there's this big advertising campaign. But what is a yog? They're the Yoga Yogs, the Yoga Mob that's fun for kids and their pictures on the lid. That was the selling point of them. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but specifically when I was very small in the 70s and early 80s, we only had ski yogurts. That was it. Just ski. And only three flavours, wasn't it? Strawberry, peach and something else. I don't know. There wasn't the choice that you get now. In fact, there's too much choice, isn't there? Don't you think capitalism needs to scale back just? tiny bit ever so slightly yes and that is a great note to finish this food theme <laughs> and i really hope we haven't served up the dessert before the main course here susie it's been a pleasure thank you thank you to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes, from the theme to the Six Wives of Henry VIII to Awesome Doom by Ed the Duck. More details at timworthington.org.